0: Thank you. Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sutter-Ducato, a writer and psychotherapist based in Los Angeles empowering clients and readers to nourish their feminine while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present in how we eat, express, and relate, and what we can do to find meaning and reach balance. On this episode, I'm discussing our food relationships through the lens of addiction, attachment, individuation, and sexuality. All things that we might not think about in terms of our food relationships, but which very much influence them or can be defined by them. Before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace or infer proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast website or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. And now, without further ado, here's this episode of the Feed the Feminine Podcast. I'm looking at this episode as an overview of some topics related to binge eating or generally disordered eating patterns. My thinking is that each of these topics can pretty much have their own episode because there's so much wrapped up within them. And I just want to put this out there with a reminder that The Hungry Feminine isn't about solutions in the sense of me purporting that I have all of the answers for your unique self. Solutions and quick fixes, they're so masculine. It's such a masculine approach to the psyche, which is such a feminine thing. And we're looking for a feminine approach to these struggles here at The Hungry Feminine so that we can explore and nurture and understand and accept ourselves and heal what aches us within us and to redirect some behaviors that aren't serving us anymore. So this is about getting an education about yourself, a portal to consciousness, not a how-to guide for fixing you. You aren't broken. You're a human compilation of all of the things that have happened to you and for you in your life. And so the sense of wholeness or peace that you seek, it, it comes from exploring yourself, not necessarily getting a how-to guide from somebody else. I say that because my podcast episodes typically have a lot of information that might be new to you. You might've always felt something like this, but couldn't name it, or you've been kind of in the dark about your relationships with food, except for the fact that you've suffered or struggled with them. And so I'm tossing a lot of information out there, a lot of different perspectives. I'm you know, I'm calling upon wiser minds who have researched these things and, and put this information out there, as well as my own personal and professional experiences. Uh, and so it's not to overwhelm you, but it's to give you a little bit of a guide in terms of what questions to ask yourself. So in terms of addiction, for the past few years, I've been seeing anti-diet culture revolutionaries saying that food addiction isn't a thing. And I think this conversation keeps popping up in recent years because the body positive and fat liberation movements want to take back the pathologizing of bigger bodies, which includes how the medical model makes assumptions in leaps and bounds about how much weight directly impacts health. So in other words, there are a lot of important conversations happening right now about how fat folks go to the doctor. And instead of getting proper examinations where true symptoms are being heard and explored, there's this blanket idea of just lose weight and the problem will solve itself that doctors provide. And it leaves a lot of people underserved in terms of their health. Neglected, I would even say, in terms of their health. Through this lens, there are pathologizing conversations around food as a substance addiction. For example, discussing the addictive properties of sugar and how if you're addicted to sugary foods, you're going to be trapped in an addictive cycle where you're just being driven by the brain's pleasure response system. And people in the anti-diet culture movement want to open up this conversation beyond food as an addiction because they say getting pleasure from food shouldn't be pathologized. That the more we focus on food as merely a strict means of nutrition and calories, the more we feed into the unconscious narratives that already govern us about restriction, that less is more. That we have to hyper-focus on how much we consume and the quality of what we consume to the point that perhaps we've developed an entirely different addiction, something which is now being called orthorexia, um, which is obviously heavily influenced by the narrative of the diet industry, and is no more healthy than a food addiction, if we're, if one were to exist. And, and I am arguing that they do exist, just maybe in a different capacity. Um, and remember that the diet industry narrative is all about deprive, deprive, deprive. Take up less, take up less space. Consume less. Focus all of your energy on. Consuming less, not just consume less, like, you know, live a full, robust life, but make sure that you are hyper-focused on how little you are eating. And if you have a craving, suppress it. Don't give in, unless it's a cheat day, right? And there's no doubt there are very, very dangerous narratives in diet culture that have informed our relationships with food for so long, for generations, but as much as I want to depathologize fat bodies and absolutely boycott diet culture mentality, I also think that we are actually better off taking ownership of language instead of oversimplifying something much more complex. At large, the word addict seems apt only to substance abusers, but we can benefit to understand that there are substance addictions and behavioral addictions. Drug and alcohol addiction can cause acute physical risks, they can create chemical dependency, and they can alter states of consciousness that most behavioral addictions do not. And that difference is important and it's to be respected. But the universality that lives in the underbelly of all addictions is often so eerily similar that it's really important to talk about. Disordered eating patterns have long been viewed as fitting under the behavioral addiction category. In other words, Putting aside the chemical responses that we can have to sugar, caffeine, and other stimulants in food that light up our pleasure center, there are certain behaviors we can engage in with nearly anything that demonstrate addictive patterns. An example of this uh, comes from psychologist Grant Martin. He wrote the book, When Good Things Become Addictions, and he explained that a fundamental component of all eating disorders is deception. He says, quote, the person with an eating disorder will go to great lengths to hide his behavior. Secrecy and deception are done to prevent his out-of-control behavior from being known. He will eat in private, binge at night, pretend to eat when he does not, steal food, use laxatives, or throw up when no one else is around, end quote. To me, that's an obvious definition of addiction. I see it time and time again with clients where this deception interrupts other areas of functioning in their lives, especially relationships, which makes sense because if you are lying about everything and hiding your behaviors then that means that, you are, that you're causing a rupture in the relationship somewhere. Now you're holding on to something that's becoming a barrier in your relationship with somebody else that now you are really acutely aware of not letting that secret out when you are around that other person. That is now taking up a great deal of your energy. But before I dive deeper into how food can be used addictively uh, and how that's not meant to pathologize, but rather add awareness and empowerment to somebody's experience. Uh, I first just want to address the elephant in the room, which to me is how we become afraid or put off by the word addiction in the first place. I think it's ruled more by the stigma attached to the word addict than its actual meaning. And it's possible that we've lost sight of how the term can actually give us context and insight into our experiences and provide us a launchpad for healing. And I think that collectively, whether we're conscious to it or not, we fantasize about being on the other side of addiction. We are most comfortable when we view addicts as being other from us, right? It's a not my problem phenomenon that keeps us feeling as though we're in control of our lives. And we feel even more in control of our lives when we can compare ourselves to the addicts over there who clearly are not in control of their lives, right? But this is really faulty thinking for a lot of different reasons. I think of most things as being on a spectrum, and I think addiction falls into that category. Many of us spend money that we don't have for immediate pleasures, and then we rack up debt that we suffer with for the rest of our lives because of it. Some of us have compulsive, regrettable sex just so that we can get out of our own heads for a moment. Some of us love other people so intensely to the point of ignoring our own selves and our own needs. Some of us work 18-hour days so that we don't ever have to stand still with ourselves. Some of our minds can't function in this masculine-driven, productive society without our morning coffee, which is a drug so acceptable to mainstream society that you can overspend on a cup on every corner. (laughs) And nearly all of us check our cell phones on average every 12 minutes as a means of dissociating, distracting, self-soothing, trying to tolerate discomfort that maybe we're not even really aware of. So there are behaviors that we all engage in to some degree, right? I'm not saying everybody's an addict. I'm not not saying that either, though. I think that it's a personal thing that you've got to reflect on about how your engagement with something might be causing a sacrifice in other areas of functioning in your life. And if you notice that there is a consequence and that you're out of control of managing that consequence, then maybe, yeah, maybe you fall into that addictive category. And maybe that's not the end of the world. Addiction is not a shackle that you have to wear around your foot. It's not a scarlet letter. Addiction is as human as it gets, especially these days where we are so fundamentally disconnected from each other in the ways that matter the most. We're aching. We're in an age of anxiety, an age of depression, an age of discomfort, an age of distraction, and responsibly an age of instant gratification. An age of fear for our future. We all turn to something to comfort us through this chaos. And the less aware we are, the more compulsively we do it. And the more we ignore the consequences of it, the more we wiggle up the spectrum of addiction. And there is no invisible line that keeps addicts on one side and the, quote, well-adjusted on the other. We're just a big collection of people struggling to find peace within ourselves. So we've got to remove the stigma of the word addiction. And removing the stigma doesn't mean removing the word. It means owning the shit out of the word so that you can understand what part of you is asking to be fed by your addiction so that you can feed it in another way and feel healthier about it. Addicts are not bad people. Addicts are not failures. Addicts are not lost causes. As a culture of connected human beings, or at least that's the goal. The more we relate to each other, the less harm we do to ourselves and subsequently everybody else. So finding these commonalities in addiction helps create empathy. And we can support each other more when we understand each other more. In breaking down the stigma of addiction, recognizing the ways in which we are all impacted by it, depathologizing it and taking ownership of it, that's where our power is. Now, before I continue, I just want to be clear that I'm not saying that everybody who struggles with their food relationships is a food addict. There are different ways that this manifests. I consider myself to be a recovering food addict because my binge eating behavior played out as such. Those were the parameters that I found myself falling into. And I'm going to get to that later in terms of what those parameters are. This doesn't rule out the influence of diet culture over me. In other words, yes, growing up with diet culture and socializing narratives about how women are supposed to look and act absolutely contributed to my unhealthy relationship with food, but it was far from the only thing. So the way my food relationship manifested was absolutely as an addiction. And I'm not saying that that's the case for everybody with disordered eating patterns, but it does exist for people. One of the many reasons I think it's important to allow for this conversation around food addiction as a behavioral addiction is because it helps us recognize how difficult it can be to have to face your addiction so frequently throughout the day. Now, there are conversations about intuitive eating and ways to overcome disordered relationships with food that help reduce these stressors, and that's great. But we also have to recognize that there are many reasons that someone might not be able to access this yet. There are barriers to intuitive eating, cultural barriers, socioeconomic barriers, educational barriers, medical barriers, and there's always simply the matter of people not being ready yet. When we talk about food relationships, we have to meet people where they're at rather than push them into our own ideals related to food. That goes both ways, with the diet industry and the anti-diet industry. We have to remember we are dealing with individual bodies and psyches that go at their own pace, that are processing their own trauma, that are moving past their own defenses at their own speed. So to hold space for food addiction helps recognize just how hard it is to have to engage with a tricky behavior for you every day, multiple times a day. So to illustrate this challenge, uh, I I turn to this quote from eating disorder specialists Margot Main and Joey Kelly. They shared a client's experience of the emotional, social, and cultural influences on disordered eating in women. So this particular client shared her struggle with bulimia as it paralleled her husband's recovery from alcoholism, which she was witnessing because, you know, they're partners. And so he was witnessing her in her bulimia and she was witnessing him in his alcoholism and she says but he won't starve if he never goes back to booze I will starve if I never go back to food I think of it like this he can keep his tiger locked up and choose not to think about it today I on the other hand have to take my tiger out of the cage for a walk three times a day end quote Now, on the one hand, this can bring up a conversation around programs like Overeaters Anonymous, which is a 12-step recovery program that mimics AA and NA, down to the abstinence part. So obviously you can't remain abstinent from food altogether. But the idea is that in these programs, you identify your, quote, problem food, and then you remain abstinent from those. And a lot of people will argue that this further perpetuates diet culture mentality and this narrative that we have to deprive ourselves in order to feel like we are in control against this giant beast of food for some people OA works more power to you it was not my cup of tea and mostly for those reasons for me if I'm looking at food as some kind of giant beast I can't get a control I can't get control of my instinct isn't to starve it but rather to give it a hug and ask it what it really needs instead so I'm not going to go down an abstinent road because I know for me that just leans to, leads to binging later The thing is, is that my way is a longer process. It's a scarier one. It's one that some people don't want to engage in or don't know how to engage in. Everybody gets to make their own choices here. Body autonomy is of the utmost importance when we discuss these issues. And by the way, if you're interested in a 12 step model for food that doesn't involve abstinence, Eating Disorders Anonymous does that. It may be a little bit more difficult to find a local meeting since the organization is smaller. I have not gone to an Eating Disorder Anonymous meeting myself but I have done research on their program. And one of the things that they state the most is that we do not include abstinence in your working of the 12 steps. But whether or not you get into that abstinence model, it's important to go back to that taking the tiger out of the cage three times a day bit because no matter how you slice it, it's true. We need to eat multiple times a day. And if food is at all some kind of trigger for you, some sort of complication for you. That is going to add a lot of underlying anxiety to your day. And that's a regular day, much less a day where maybe you're traveling or you don't have access to the same food routine that maybe you've gotten used to as a means of comfort. Struggling with food comes with a constant barrage of engaging with hunger, mealtime decisions about what to eat and how much to eat, temptations that are in plain sight on billboards and commercials, And all the while battling those unconscious cries for more, several times every day. A couple of behavioral scientists out of Cornell, Brian Wansink and Jeffrey Sobel, they conducted a series of studies uh, a while back that with the help of 139 participants, 75% were female. They examined how many food-related decisions the the average person makes on a daily basis. Accounting for snacks, beverages, and meals, the study showed that the average person makes more than 200 choices each day about food, including when and where to eat, when to start cooking, who to eat with, and when to stop eating. So people who struggle with food addiction are not only taking their tiger for a walk three times a day, they're also spending much more time inundated with internal questions about how to prepare for that obligatory cage opening and how to hope that you can get the tiger back in the cage and lock up the cage every time before it attacks you. Now, I want to point out that this study was done a while ago before this thing we call Instagram <laughs> came into our lives. And, I mean, just think about the pressures that we experience or the temptations or the even more questions in the barrage of food-related things now that we've got Instagram in our faces all day long with people posting their food porn pictures and things like that. This can all be really overwhelming. It can create a constant ongoing dance with shame all day long. And because of that, it can lead to periods of restriction, completely avoiding these decisions and questions and just depriving the self of food instead. This was a major thing for me for such a long time. I couldn't figure out why I would go through periods of restriction. I think there were a lot of reasons I went through periods of restriction, but the most obvious one, the first one, the the first line of defense, the thing that I really struggled to get past was if I eat, that means I have to open a door. It's opening that cage and I'm not prepared to handle what's going to happen when I open that door. So I'm just not going to eat. I'm going to starve myself all day. Because I'm at work and I'm dealing with X, Y, and Z and I'm doing all of these other things and I don't have the emotional capacity to deal with what's going to happen when I have to open that cage. I didn't have the language for it at the time that I was struggling with it, but that's what, that's what I was going through. And so knowing this can give us insight into what's driving these behaviors. And without that understanding, we can't figure out what's actually trying to be fed, what we're actually hungry for. So going back to general addictive behaviors, here's a quote from Grant Martin. Again, that's the book When Good Things Become Addictions. And granted, it's an old publication relative to the ever-changing modern times of information, but the point holds up. He says, quote, one of the key determinants in addiction is persistence. You continue with the behavior in spite of harmful consequences. However wonderful the feeling of the moment, the consequences of compulsive pleasure-seeking are often devastating and defeating. Yet in spite of the cost, Countless men and women have spent much of their lives in relentless pursuit of those transient moments of heavenly delight, end quote. And so other behaviors associated with addiction include acting in secrecy, like we talked about before, interruptions in interpersonal relationships, which could be because of the secrecy, but it also could be, could be because you are seeking a replacement to interpersonal relationships because maybe they don't feel safe to you. And so instead of going out and socializing, you stay home and you binge eat. Other addictive behaviors include preoccupation, neglecting other areas of your life, struggling to cease behaviors, even when you want to, you feel out of control, minimizing the intensity of the problem. So really downplaying it whenever you talk about it or think about it and experiencing withdrawals when abstinent. And so even among clinicians, there have been disagreements about what behaviors or substances can qualify as having an addiction associated with them. But in my professional and personal experience, I have found that the vice itself, whether it's an upper, a downer, food, gambling, sex, porn, technology, work, exercise, shopping, other people, whatever, the vice itself is less important than how much the relationship with the vice is interrupting daily functioning and the user's ability to pursue the life that they actually want. So all that said, yes, diet industry has a hold of us and our unconscious views of food and body. And it's been that way for generations. But again, it is not the only thing that informs our relationship with food and body. There are other reasons apart from diet culture mentality that people will lean on food for comfort and self-soothing. So diet culture is bad, yes, but by only focusing on that as the root cause of our issues with body and food, we're, we're missing a whole bigger picture here. So let's draw the line in the sand. You are not a food addict for enjoying food, eating large portions of food, enjoying sweets, not being on a diet, being in a fat body, being happy in a fat body, eating when you're hungry, eating when you're not hungry, intuitively eating, giving into cravings, not being vegan, not counting calories, getting pleasure from food, struggling with your body image, having a hard time reading hunger cues, or eating to self-soothe sometimes. You're not a food addict for those things. You might be a food addict if your use of food gets in the way of your growth in other areas of your life. If you're avoiding relationships by spending nights binge eating instead of being out with people. If you call out of work sometimes because you made yourself sick with food the night before. If your physical health is at risk and yet you still continue to eat large amounts of unhealthy food and or restrict or purge. If you've become unable to regulate your own emotions or tolerate discomfort without disappearing into food. Again, if you lie about what you eat to avoid shame or remain in control. Or if you're spending more money than you can afford on food because you're overeating in each setting and therefore your finances are taking a hit. If you're doing those things, there might be a food addiction present and that's okay. Acknowledging and accepting the problem is the launch pad for healing if that's what you want to do. It's why if there's anything, you know, non-controversial about the 12-step model, it's that the first step starts with accepting that this is going on, naming it so that you can understand it and work with it. So if you're still with me, the question might become why? Why do we become so enthralled with the high that we risk our safety, we risk, we risk our relationships, we risk our long-term happiness for instant gratification? What are we avoiding or what are we seeking? And so this is where the attachment piece comes into play. Many times we act to self-soothe, and we do that in order to maintain our nervous system from emotions that we can't tolerate, trauma responses that overwhelm us, feelings of helplessness, a lack of agency, a constant hyper arousal that makes us feel unsafe, even when the warnings of our unsafety are coming from within. In other words, there's no real threat. This roller coaster for our nervous system and a constant state of being uneasy, it can be born from unhealthy attachment or relational wounding. So therapist Philip Flores, he wrote a book called Addiction as an Attachment Disorder, and he noted that the ability to have, quote, intimate, long-lasting, gratifying relationships is established in the early stages of development, and addictive compulsions may arise as compensation in the wake of a relational deficiency, end quote. So these deficiencies can take a lot of forms, like when a child's physical needs are not met by a caregiver, or in any relationship where somebody is unable to trust, connect, or be vulnerable with another person. As a dysfunctional attachment style starts to be created, the ability to feel satisfied from interpersonal relationships completely diminishes. And he says, quote, experiences related to early developmental failures leave certain individuals with vulnerabilities that enhance addictive type behaviors, and these behaviors are misguided attempts at self-repair, end quote. Those misguided attempts at self-repair are us trying to manage the emotions and the visceral responses that come from those emotions so that we can soothe ourselves. So clinical psychologist Elizabeth Howell and psychology professor Sheldon Itzkowitz they help make this distinction as it pertains to food. They say, quote, the compulsions of binging and purging can be thought of as futile attempts to control bodily sensations, which are alternatively chaotic, overwhelming, shut down, or numbed. And this is interestingly, not to keep going back to the 12-step model, but one of the reasons that the 12-step model can be effective is because of the community that inherently comes from those groups. So I remember the first time I went to an AA meeting, which was in Malibu around 2012. And I remember walking in figuring that I wasn't going to have anything in common with anybody because alcohol was never something that I really even particularly enjoyed. I just went out of curiosity. And I think at that time, some part of me knew that I was a food addict, but I couldn't admit it. And I certainly didn't even know that OA, Overeaters Anonymous, existed at that point. So I went to AA just out of curiosity. And rather than feel like an outsider, I walked out of that meeting room never having felt more connected to other people in my life. And the reason for that is because while our substance might be different, what we were all at once chasing and running away from was exactly the same. Alcoholism is known to be genetic, but while an alcoholic is predisposed to reach for the bottle as their vice, what gets them there is the same thing that gets a food addict to their next isolated binge, right? Whether it is the high of a drug, the low of alcohol, the dominance of sex, the protective walls of clutter, the approval of technology, the distraction of material consumption, the fulfillment of food binging, the penance of starvation, or the exorcism of purging, most addictive behaviors are created from the same selection of ingredients. Depression, anxiety, fear, shame, loss, abuse, trauma, unhealthy attachments, and an inability to be with oneself in one's own skin. In our addictions, we can become numb, hidden, and granted permission to hate ourselves for our missteps, and that's exactly the way we want it because we think it's what we deserve. Another quote from Philip J. Flores, quote, because of a person's difficulty maintaining emotional closeness with others, certain vulnerable individuals are more likely to substitute a vast array of obsessive compulsive behaviors, for example, sex, food, drugs, alcohol, working, gambling, computer games, etc., that serve as a distraction from the gnawing emptiness and internal discomfort that threatens to overtake them, end quote. And that's all stemming from An inability to connect healthily and completely in relationships with other people, which is at the end of the day, our most primal instinct as human beings. But we've created a world where there is so much in the way of us and other people. And we yearn for it and we see it, but we can't reach it. It's like a cat trying to get at the laser pointer on the wall. There's no real satisfaction because there's no real connection that gets made. It's just, I see it and I know what I want but there's nothing for me to grab onto. And so a lot of this comes from attachment styles that are developed in our early stages of life. And again, we could have a whole episode about attachment style as it relates to food behaviors or relationships. And uh, I probably will do that. Going even deeper, though, into our past... Uh, Here's an interesting concept. So Jungian analyst James Hollis, he expanded on the importance of relationships to the developing self. But he looked beyond the development of relationships in childhood and went all the way into pre-birth. And he suggested that humans are engaged in, quote, the going home project, end quote, or the desire to return to the place where they felt the most powerful connection to the universe, the womb. And this desire to return to the womb, quote, is deeply programmed in us from our traumatic onsets, end quote. The trauma being our expulsion from the womb into the external world, so our birth, end quote. But as we see all around us, it remains the chief saboteur of intimate relationships. Thus, we are all caught between the deeply programmed desire to fuse with the other, as in our families, partners, friends, and the inner imperative to separate, to individuate, end quote. Take it a little bit deeper before I go back to that piece about individuating. It was author and philosopher Aldous Huxley who introduced us to the transcendental function of addiction, which is even the, you know, supposed well-adjusted person's means of escaping their own humanness to reach a higher plane of existence. To Jungian analyst Marion Woodman, addiction is our quest for wholeness, an illusory totality that convinces us that we've done it. There's a numinosity, a connection to God, something above us, above our human limitations that can that can be reached, or at least the illusion of it can be reached um, in our relationship with an addiction. But the truth is, is that we're far from actually executing it, and that's why we suffer, right? We are more than what we seem, and we know that. We're just trying to find ways to believe it and ways to connect Throughout that process, when we're unable to, though, we seek comfort and quick pleasures that help us self-soothe, distract, or shut off. So Hollis's idea of the struggle between returning home to the womb and separating in consciousness, it complemented Carl Jung's concept of individuation, which suggested that a further separation from one's caregiver was needed to find, quote, inner transformation and rebirth into another being. This other being is the other person in ourselves, that larger and greater personality maturing within us, whom we have already met as the inner friend of the soul, Jung said. But he also added that together with this inner self, a person is actually a pair of selves, quote, one of whom is mortal and the other immortal, and who, though always together, can never be made completely one, end quote. So, This is getting a little quotey and sort of theoretical. Although Jung deemed the inner self a friend, he remarked that this other being can be viewed as a foe by the fearful and defended ego, which he defined as the center of consciousness, the transformational process of individuation. It strives to approximate the mortal and immortal to one another. But our consciousness is aware of resistance because the other person seems strange and uncanny and because we cannot get accustomed to the idea that we are not the absolute master of our own house. We should prefer to always be I and nothing else, but we are confronted with that inner friend or foe. And whether he is our friend or foe depends on ourselves. End quote. So it's a pretty complex and difficult thing to be stirring around within us. But I think that's the piece that we often miss in this human life, which in modern times has us inundated with material focuses amidst these larger-than-life existential experiences that we are having inside of us, right? And what is more existential and universal than our ongoing fear and misunderstanding of death? So now let's add this into the equation, right? Our fear of death is the thing that arguably rules the parameters of all of life itself, right? And And it's so spread out throughout us that it hits us at our at our most unconscious and our most conscious marion woodman her perspective was that the ego as the center of consciousness needs a relationship with something greater an ego transcendent in order to compensate for its fear of death the need for that which is other is concretized to the object of one's addiction this confuses people to not know what is going on there is a need for the transcendent except that god doesn't matter anymore ritual doesn't matter But the God they didn't find in the church or in the woods or in wherever they're finding in the bottle, with the bottle being an addiction. And the union that they don't find in making love, they find through another kind of sexuality. But the union that they yearn for, that total coming together, they can't find because they concretize the concept and it kills them. That's a, that's a quote from Woodman. And so Woodman also explains that addictions can often serve to that end, to quell the fear, to facilitate the transcendence, as Aldous Huxley also described, and to find something else, something bigger than us to connect to so that we don't feel this existential crisis of like floating away like a balloon that's going to pop at any moment. This is some like scary stuff that happens, Right. We're dealing with a lot of things as humans, and it's not just the fact that we need to be plugged into work 24 hours or that we've got to pay the bills or that we're running late for things or that there's so much deeper that's happening for us that we are in an anxious state about. And we are just seeking ways to quell it rather than understand it, accept it, and integrate it into us. And and a lot of this gets kind of heady, right? So again, maybe there will be a whole separate episode about the existential crisis of <laughs> being a human and how food plays into that. But there's also, uh, in terms of this individuation process, there's some other pieces. So in her work with women that were consumed by food and a negative body image, Mary Woodman also observed that a food complex could hold a tyrannical power over an individual, with food becoming the focus for depression, repressed anger, anxiety, and repressed sexuality. She discovered that food, quote, becomes a means of attempting to control one's fate, of expressing defiance of another's control, defiance of the law and social customs, or even defying nature and God, end quote. And in this situation, with so many disowned emotions that are misplaced, a relationship with food becomes stronger and safer than one with people and the things that we actually desire in our lives. So in these food relationships, unconscious dynamics continue to unfold. Quote, the system of punishment and reward in relation to feeding the obese body becomes a moral issue. When they feel rejected by others, they tend to compensate their loss by eating. When they are angry with themselves, they punish their bodies by eating. When they are happy, they reward their bodies by not eating. Quote. So, in short, food becomes the scapegoat for every emotion, and it forms the nucleus around which the personality starts to revolve. And by the way, Woodman's use of obese, she uses it a lot in her writings. And granted, most of these publications were, you know, out in the early 80s. Um, And there's controversy over the word obese now because it is a medically constructed term that historically has been used to pathologize people in larger bodies only because they're in larger bodies and not because of actual health risks that come from it. So individuation, right? It's its whole thing. And we'll talk more about it. But sexuality also comes into play with our food relationships in a couple of different ways. One is that it, it can be a mechanism of individuation. And I'll get to that in a minute. But it can also be used as a metaphor for food, which is to say that there can be an eros in our food relationships, which, as Marion Woodman noted in that earlier quote, when we cannot connect in lovemaking, we seek out connectivity through another kind of sexuality. So in this part of the conversation, I would just like to note that sexuality will be discussed both literally and metaphorically. And what I mean by this is that when we discuss food and body relationships, there is an an unequivocal relationship to sex and developing sexuality in a literal way. But there is also a metaphorical representation of sexuality that goes beyond what we think of in terms of the physical act of sex and more into the intimacy, the eroticism, the discovery and the expression of self the joining with another soul, the transcending of the human experience by way of the human experience. It's the archetypal eros, why we yearn for it and when we turn to food for it because we can't find it elsewhere. I also don't find sex and sexuality to be interchangeable. Sexuality to me represents a freedom from boundaries in order to be seen and touched and altered by some other force and then to have that altered version of you reintegrate back behind the boundary sex is merely one way to accomplish that engaging in conversation collaborating on a piece of art singing dancing these are cooking with somebody these are experiences of sexuality if done with vulnerability but likewise sex can be had without sexuality if if you're having sex that is missing the vulnerability required to create intimacy then you're having sex but it's lacking that eros So a developed sexuality to me means being so safe inside the walls of your own body that you're willing to let down the castle gate, venture outside as your genuine self, and trust that whatever happens, you know who you are, and eventually, when you're ready, how to get home. That is intimacy. In my professional experience, I have met a lot of women, specifically, who struggle with their food intake, and by that I mean they're usually in a restrictive or binging cycle, And they won't eat throughout most of the day, but then they will binge at the day's end. There is a relatively high prevalence of what is being called sexual anorexia among those folks. A deprivation that goes beyond food and into intimacy. Connectivity. Being nurtured by somebody. And sex. So going back to our conversation about attachment and how unsafe relationships can feel... There are feelings of unworthiness, codependent behaviors, dismissal from others, and other mechanisms of of unhealthy relationships that cause a person to stay away from them entirely, especially when it comes to physical intimacy. Because then there's also a piece about the body involved. And for these people, food becomes their intimacy. It becomes a relationship where they can lose themselves, where they can feel free for a moment, where they can feel pleasure, where they can rise above the mundane life experiences and feel fulfilled and satisfied. Without having to deal with the rejection, the pain, the fear, or the toxicity that comes with interpersonal relationships as they have known them historically for themselves. It also is not uncommon for these women to have also experienced some type of sexual abuse that made their body feel unsafe to them. So what I said earlier about feeling safe in the walls of your body so much that you can venture outside of it into someone else's world but still know who you are and know how to get home. The latter part of that experience cannot happen if the safety piece is missing. So for those who struggle with feelings of safety in relationship to their body or sex, again, they may deprive themselves of this trauma-inducing experience of sex with somebody else, but will still crave some kind of intimacy, of course. Which, for those who struggle with food, that may show up in the eros of the food relationship. And when these things are not lining up, these instincts can be completely displaced. So sexual longing for wholeness can be redirected onto food. The ecstasy of eating takes on the emotional connotations of sexuality and numinosity, godliness. A quote from Marion Woodman, which I think really ties this together. Quote, eating until the ego slips into the unconscious becomes a parody of orgasm. Behind it is the longing for release of tension in peace, sleep. Or even deaf. end quote. So when it comes to the actual stage of sexual development, especially for young women, there are additional pre- pressures which arise throughout it, which might make it difficult to even go through that individuation process as an adolescent or in later developments of life. Some of that comes from the father complex. Some of that comes from the guilt that comes from cultural views about sex, how expressive women are allowed to be With When it comes to their sexuality, how easy it is for women to be viewed as the whore, if not definitively seen as the virgin and how women ought to behave and look in order to be welcomed into their sexuality. Um, There's a whole there's a whole piece that Woodman writes about in The Owl Was a Baker's Daughter about how essentially the father during his daughter's adolescence needs to almost allow her free her from him so that she can go explore herself through this age-appropriate sexual development, which informs her individuation. Now, this is obviously not an explicit allowance, although sometimes it can be. Um, But it's this idea that if you are are caught up in serving the role as the good daughter and all of the responsibilities that that comes with and all of the self-neglect that that comes with, that you've already got a barrier off the bat that you're not off exploring your own sexuality and your own sense of self. Because you're in service to some other role. And then add on top of it the cultural nonsense that we deal with, especially as women. But in general, the way that we talk about sex, the way that we shame sex, but also fetishize se- sex, its we do with sex a lot of what I say we do with food, which is we act like it's the devil, but secretly in response to that, we fetishize it. So it's safe to say that there are a lot of things getting in the way of this necessary initiation process. Which can divert the energy away from sex into something else entirely. Because the need is still there. But if the need can't be fulfilled with its right target, it's going to find somewhere else to land. And so obviously there's more to discuss on these points in future episodes. but, But skipping that piece or not engaging with it wholly creates impacts beyond just sex and sexuality. When it comes to individuation, sexuality plays a big role. Remember that individuation is about bringing into consciousness the whole of the psyche And its distinction from the ego, which requires shadow integration and also a distinction from other people in our lives and the unconscious messaging or mythology that we received from them. It's a growing up of sorts. And sexual development is one of the most definitive ways we explore and engage in that process. So if something interrupted that development for you, you may find yourself engaging in an addictive relationship that tries to serve those needs, but will always come up short and therefore leave you suffering. So why does all of this matter? I mean, why talk about all of these complicated theories and ideas uh, when maybe you feel confused or like your head is spinning, right? And that's, I think if your head is spinning after everything that I've just said, um, then I've done my job because there is something to be said for that. And maybe what you need to do after you watch this podcast episode is meditate for a little while or draw a mandala, which is one of my favorite ways to integrate really heady material into my whole self. Um, but maybe just find some or, or movement, maybe just find some way to kind of be with yourself and all of these words that I just threw at you um, so that they can you don't have to make sense of them in your brain, but the pieces that are resonating for you are going to touch the parts of you that matter. So this doesn't make any sense. But in other words, what I'm saying is you don't have to go through every word that I just said with a fine tooth comb and figure out what works for you. What you do is of everything that I've just said in the last 40 minutes, you've remembered certain highlights here and there because they made you feel a certain way when you heard me say them. Those particular remarks, those are the things to sort of hold on to because they struck a chord with you somewhere. And so if you just take some time to get out of your head about it and not try to figure it out reasonably, logically, mentally, and allow for a feminine process for it to integrate within your experience, then your knowledge starts to take over the rest of your body and things start to make a little bit more sense for you. I share so much information on these episodes without giving these how-tos for solving the problems because it's how we get to know ourselves more that we find our own path, right? There isn't a how-to for you. You're a unique person who's gone through a very unique combination of things and needs a very unique combination of things apart from the basic human stuff that I've talked about. And we can work on the behavior modification and all of those things. But the truth is, is that looking for the answer outside of you is exactly the orientation that's creating the suffering and distress for you in the first place. So this isn't about solving you. It's about discovering you. Naming your suffering, understanding how you oriented to the world at a young age through attachment, through core beliefs that you were unconsciously taught about who you are, what you're capable of, and how the world is allowed to treat you. Getting to the bottom of those things within you specifically because you are unlike anybody else and understanding and exploring yourself then is the better way to learn how to take care of yourself, how to reparent that child within you now that you're an adult with some agency and the ability to become conscious. Consciousness, that is the point of these things. So take this information and head off to therapy with someone who can help guide you through these explorations or integrate it into yourself without judgment, but with curiosity, with forgiveness, but with questions, right? Without trying to change it, but just trying to understand it. But don't look to somebody else for the answers. Don't look for an outside system with instructions on how to live the life of your dreams. That doesn't really exist. Explore yourself. Feel validated that your suffering makes sense. That you're not alone in your suffering. And that everything that I've just talked about, or some of what I just talked about, contributed to why you're feeling so confused and off path. But let those corners of your psyche know that it's okay to reveal themselves. That this information can come out and play. So long as it feels safe, get to know yourself. And get support for the times when it feels overwhelming and scary because of course that's going to happen too. And so with that, uh, I'm going to say thank you for listening (laughs) and spending this time with me. If you are in the Los Angeles area and you're interested in seeing me for therapy in private practice, you can head over to thehungryfeminine.com and click on the therapy tab at the top and uh, that will lead you to all of the information that you need there. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you want to explore more, you can follow me on Instagram at the Hungry Feminine or sign up for my email list at thehungryfeminine.com. I have not sent out an email in a very, very long time, but one will will come at some point. Um <laughs> and if you would like to support my work, you can become a patron at patreon.com/slash thehungryfeminine, or you can make a one-time Venmo donation at the Hungry Feminine. And so thank you again for being here, and I will see you next time.